It's Friday, July 9th, 2021, and you are listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the free world. I am Jonathan Mavroidis, a senior writer at the Hoover Institution. I am sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Fellow in Journalism, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Lee Ohanian, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Ohanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California On Your Mind. Good day, gentlemen. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Lee. Hey, Bill. Hey, Jonathan. So let's jump into the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Uh, the recall election is locked and loaded for September 14th. Uh, Bill, could you start off by describing how state officials settled on this state and what does this mean for uh, California Governor Newsom and his Republican political opponents? That's a little bit of follow the bouncing ball. The way the process works is uh, the counties in California have to certify the recall votes. When that um, when they're done certifying, then handing the numbers to the uh, state uh, secretary of state in Sacramento, uh, Shirley Weber. She then uh, verifies as well. And then there's a 30 day period in California. This is a little provision Democrats slipped in. Um, a few years ago, a 30-day period that allows voters to take back their recall vote if they want to, they're signing the petition. Um, I think 40-some people out of 1.7 million people um, um, who signed a petition actually took theirs back. Anyway, once that came back and we had a final, final number, then it goes to the lieutenant governor of California, hence the bouncing ball here. And she, Eleni Kunalakis, is tasked with uh, assigning a date for the election. Here's where things get interesting. She could um, do it as far as 90 days ahead. Uh, she took about a 75-day window. She didn't take the minimum 60-day window that she had. What that means, Jonathan, is uh, when she set the date for September the 14th, that meant that uh, recall candidates had about 14 days until 59 days out before the election, uh, which is a week from this Friday, July the 16th, to actually formalize their candidacy. Um, so it gives uh, the remaining Republicans looking this time to get in. It also begs this question, Jonathan and Lee, of whether or not a Democrat is going to uh, jump into this race, which is significant for two reasons. Number one, um, you look at that other side of the ballot, you know, the recall is a two-part question. Question one, recall the governor, then question two, choose among these candidates for another governor. If it's all Republicans and independents and non-Democrats, then that means that whoever finishes first on that side could become the governor of California if Newsom, if Newsom loses on the first part of the question. Um, and they could slip in with as little as maybe 15, 20% of the statewide vote, if you will. But if you put one Democrat on that side, he or she would get 30% of the vote uh, just based on um, the uh, number of Democrats in California. Uh, but the other reason why it's important having a Democrat in the race is because it um, sort of waters down Newsom's main talking point here at all times that it's a quote, Republican recall. The Governor always trying to evoke the likes of Mike Huckabee, Newt Gingrich, uh, Donald Trump, I'm sure will factor prominently into this thing before it's over. The idea of this was just put forward by Republicans to take out he a good Democratic governor. So watch for that next week to see if a Democrat gets in the race. Are there any prospects? Um, are there any Democratic prospects, prospects that could jump in? 
You know, the, the name most talked about most would be Antonio Villaraigosa, the former mayor of, uh, least former mayor of Los Angeles. Um, and he ran against Newsom in the primaries in 2018. He did not finish uh, second. Uh, so he did not make the runoff against Newsom. That was John Cox, a Republican, who's actually a, an announced recall candidate. But he doesn't seem to have much appetite of, uh, for running. What I'm curious about is this. I think that we can get into this more in this broadcast. I think the recall ultimately serves, if Newsom survives, it serves as a warm up act for 2022 in terms of candidates uh, like Kevin Faulkner, the former mayor of San Diego, getting some statewide exposure. But I think also both locally and nationally, Republicans tasting, testing themes. In other words, trying to define what is wrong with the progressive existence in California being sort of the embodiment of that. I was going to ask you about this filing deadline. Apparently, there is a, um, there's a requirement to disclose five years of tax returns for a recall, or at least a proposed requirement. Could that potentially scare off any of these recall candidates? It could if you have uh, taxes you don't want the public to see. But, you know, there are two sort of legal nuances going on right now. First of all, uh, one involves the governor. He, His campaign attorney committed a filing error when he turned in his paperwork for this. And at present, uh, Newsom's name would appear on the ballot without the word D, without the letter D and the word Democrat next to that. Now, uh, I think Lee and I can maybe joke about the fact that if you are a Californian, you don't know that Gavin Newsom is a Democrat, you are the lowest of low information voters. But um, he's fighting that right now. He has to go up against uh, the Secretary of State, Shirley Weber. It's uncomfortable. He has to sue her in court for this. uh, And he appointed her in the first place. But the tax return issue. So Newsom signed a law in 2019. And this was a Trump measure uh, because Trump famously did not release his taxes while he was president uh, when he ran twice for office. And so Newsom and legislature got together and they passed a law saying that if you want to run in a primary in California, presidential primary, you have to produce um, two hard copies of every income tax return filed with the IRS, uh, the most five recent taxable years. So for candidates, the recall, Jonathan, this would be 2016 to, uh, to 2020. Question number one would be, is this legal um, to force candidates to um, put forward their tax returns? Jerry Brown, who was Gavin Newsom's predecessor, he vetoed a similar bill in 2017. He said, here's the problem. The problem is a slippery slope. If I require Lee Lohadian to um, turn in five years of, you know, of tax records, and I'm going to just turn around and pass another bill requiring Lee Lohadian to produce five years of medical records, then we're going to go back to Lee's kindergarten records and see if he's a bedwetter or not. I mean, it was just, it's a slippery slope that you don't want to go down as a politician. Um, So here's the question. If you're a recall candidate and you say, I don't think this law applies to me, you could turn in your paperwork. But if you look at the Secretary of State's website, there's a checkoff list for candidates to what's required. There's a $4,000 check for admission, obviously. But then there's also a box that says you have to submit five years of income tax returns. I suppose you could try to sue her uh, for this, but here's the problem. Uh, It's getting your name on the ballot. Uh, There's yet another California law that Newsom signed that says that every Californian will receive a ballot in this election. Well, uh, once all the candidates are in 59 days out, they have to print that ballot right away. So if you are running in this recall and you're in limbo, whether or not legally you're on the ballot or not because your tax returns, you don't have time for the courts to process. So I suspect if you're running, you're going to have to turn in your tax returns. Lee, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating issue from a strategy point of view for both for both the Democratic Party and those who are running in in opposition to Newsom. Bill spoke about the timing. Um, it's it's not a surprise that the timing is is very very quick. It's not it's not at the minimum number of days, but it's close to that. And schools will be schools will be starting up shortly before September 15th. 
COVID is now becoming more of a problem because the Delta variant of COVID is, uh, is not blocked nearly as effectively by the Pfizer vaccine. It looks like it's about 64% effective and the Pfizer vaccine, which, uh, which yours truly received, um, is one that seems to weaken over time. Uh, Pfizer announced yesterday it was working on a booster shot Sounds like it'll be remarkably impressive. It could increase antibodies by a factor of 10. Um, but when will this booster shot be available? The reason I say all this is that schools did not reopen. California was 49th in school reopenings. This is perhaps, uh, you know, if not the biggest, one of the biggest concerns for Newsom. He could not get teachers back in the classroom despite enormous financial promises. He was seen to be weak on this in a number of editorials, including major newspapers throughout the state. He was seen as, as not being strong enough to stand up to teachers unions, which is really the, uh, the organization that's keeping kids out of schools. So to have waited to October or November and potentially let the school issue about reopenings become an even bigger problem would have been very troubling uh, for Newsom and the Democratic Party. So the timing is not surprising to me. Bill, uh, Bill rose the remarkably interesting issue of should a Democrat appear um, as uh, you might say as a safety valve. Uh, and you know we could have potentially Anthony Villaraigosa um, as governor of the state of California for the roughly for the next year. Um, so that's fascinating for two reasons. Um, one is that not only is it a safety valve, but there's the potential for people to say, yeah, uh, even Democrats and certainly independents to say, I'm not particularly happy with Newsom, but I remember Villa Ragosta did a pretty good job uh, as mayor in LA. Now, granted, he didn't get really much traction at all during the 2018 campaign. So, you know, I was surprised by how little traction he received, particularly in a state with a large group of Hispanic voters. Uh, but nevertheless, there's, uh, there, there's, there's, potential, there's a potential issue there. Um, I think at the end of the day, Newsom to me looks like he's desperate. He, he has framed the recall effort as one being driven by um, racism and white supremacists and, uh, and, and, and people who just aren't of, of sound mind. And 1.7 million people signed that recall initiative. Uh, and one of my California on your mind columns uh, was titled uh, the recall is on and not because 1.7 million signatories are racist. So when I say desperation, he's essentially casting off uh, potentially a large group of people who could find that really very offensive. Um, number two, the Democratic Party, no matter, you know, even if Newsom prevails, the Democratic Party is in real trouble with him because 2022 is an election, as Bill noted, uh, one year ahead. Um, and what are they going to do with the guy who was recalled just one year before? Newsom must have, if he's going to be an effective candidate, assuming he prevails in 2021, he has to have some wins. Um, he hasn't had a win yet. His, his win-loss column is an awful lot of losses. And even though this is a one-party state, um, the Democratic Party's got to be really concerned 
about anointing a person to be governor who probably shouldn't have been the one that they handpicked. Um, when you look at politicians, Bill, I'd love to hear your ideas about this. When you look at politicians who people gravitate towards, even if they don't necessarily agree with everything they do, you look at Ronald Reagan, um, you look at Bill Clinton, those are people who commanded the room. Those are people who commanded a lot of respect. Um, I was very, I was very uncomfortable with a lot of uh, personal issues in Bill Clinton's life, including financial aspects. But I have to say, Bill Clinton commanded the political, the political landscape of America in the 1990s to the point where he destroyed Bob Dole in the 1996 presidential election. Um, Gavin Newsom is not in that group of people. I think the Democratic Party now knows it, and I think they're going to be they're going to be very worried, no matter what happens in this 2021 recall election. Yes, and Lee raises a lot of great points. The California Democratic Party is a, a powerful mechanism in California. You just look at the sheer numbers, Jonathan, and Democrats outnumber Republicans by about a two to one margin, um, and uh, independents and Republicans being about even. That said, it's not necessarily a united, tightly knit uh, party in this regard. You look inside, and uh, just as you saw you know, for a while in the national uh, primaries back in 2020, there was unrest. There was unrest by the younger uh, segment of the party, the much more you know, socialist, progressive wing of things, the Elizabeth Warren Bernie acolytes, if you will. Um, they sorely want to get rid of Dianne Feinstein, whose term expires in 2024. Um, sometimes they take issue with this governor as well. He's not as suitably to the left of them, as you, if you can imagine that. Um, so there's unrest there. And, and this comes down to in the next week or so, the challenge, the really kind of the question of the governor's hold on his party. Uh, while he is not the you know, titular head of the, of the party in California, uh, he does control a lot of authority in several ways. First of all, he is, the, you know, he is the chief lawmaker in Sacramento. Bills have to come through him to sign. That gives him a lot of leverage. The same with the budget. Also, governors make appointments. Governors can make a lot of friends and enemies. And governors also, if they have a good political operation, as most governors do, they have long memories like elephants, even though it's a donkey party. And they will take note of who crosses them. And so this gets us back to the question of, who would dare to jump on the ballot? Uh, again, they could do it um, in you know the spirit of safety and its insurance, and say that they love Governor Newsom and praise the high heavens. But Newsom's people ultimately look at it as an act of betrayal because they will see it as somehow legitimizing this recall effort. It won't be appreciated, um, and it just has to be fascinating to look at because you know 2022 is going to be a very busy year in California politics. The governor is up for re-election. Um, there is a Senate race next year. Kamala Harris's uh, appointee uh, replacement, Alex Padilla. Uh, he has to run for a full term because he's serving out the remainder of her term, which expires next year. You have the statewide constitutional office, plus the usual uh, 80 assembly races, 40 state Senate races and so forth. There's a lot of moving around on the chessboard. So you might think that a Democrat who wants to get some free attention uh, and some notoriety statewide could use the recall again as something of a proving ground. But boy, you know, if they have to, if they'll have to think about what price it might come. If you're a lawmaker in Sacramento, you'll probably be frozen up by the governor at that point. So uh, it might be seen as um, an act of suicide to do it. But again, I'm curious about that. But, and to close out on what Lee said about schools, um, very interesting, the CDC today put out um, some more um, guidelines with regards to schools. Um, and it was essentially saying the show must go on. And what the CDC said was, even though we see the Delta uh, variant taking place, 
Uh, we still think schools should be reopened. Just teachers will have to wear a mask. And kids will have to wear a mask. So I think that come April, August the 15th in California, which is, I think, lead the day when public schools open here, uh, I think there's going to be a real flashpoint between, again, the teachers unions and um, and local and local counties over what exactly reopening looks like. And if this goes awkwardly, and we've talked about this on previous podcasts, this is a problem for Newsom and that you know, while he is not directly involved in the opening of schools, it happens on his watch and it begs the question, where is the governor in all of this? And I think if you want to make a lot of voters sour, screw up your reopening. Assuming um, Newsom wins or there's a, a Democratic challenger who wins this election, do you think the, uh, the politics of the Democratic Party is pushed further left this next year or is it going to try to move to the center? Well, you know, essentially, I'd love to get least thoughts on this, but I am just looking at the money pouring into the Newsom campaign. I wrote about this for California on your mind um, last week. He's getting money from um, some very famous people. Um, Lorraine and Powell Jobs, Steve Jobs' widow, has uh, put in a couple hundred thousand dollars. He got $3 million from um, uh, Reed Hastings, the, uh, the chair of Netflix. You might be saying, wait a second, what about uh, campaign uh, limits in California? Uh, there's a loophole here that places the governor's benefit. If uh, a politician is the subject of a recall, they do not have to comply with normal donor limits in California. So whereas his challengers can only get a max donation of $32,000 if it's directly to the campaign, you can still do independent expenditures that are unlimited, but uh, you can uh, contribute uh, without any limit to Newsom's campaign. So the case of Hastings is interesting, Reed Hastings, because he was somebody who gave a lot of money to Antonio, the aforementioned Antonio Villaraigosa, back in 2018, because he and several other prominent uh, Californians, the late Eli Broad, for example, are real warriors when it comes to charter schools. And they saw Newsom as way too beholden to the California Teachers Association, whereas Villaraigosa, the mayor of Los Angeles, had a very long uh, testing relationship with uh, United Teachers Los Angeles, the big union in LA. They thought, you know, this is a guy who'd be kind of a reasonable voice. Now Hastings comes along and he donates $3 million to Newsom. Why would that be? I think it's very simple. He knows that post recall that everyone who's going to be, you know, anticipating a, you know, quid pro quo from the governor, I gave you money, explicitly returned. They he wants a seat at the table, and I think he wants a seat at the table, especially knowing that the teachers unions pour a lot of money into this, which they will invariably. He wants to be a voice against them. So um, this is kind of the oddity of the recall. Whereas he might, you know, privately prefer Antonio Villaraigosa as governor. He's got to give money to Newsom with the anticipation that Newsom wins, and that Newsom's going to remember who was with him when he won. Bill, Bill makes uh, Bill makes some great points, um, and just to touch on the school issue uh, a bit more, the idea of of teachers unions uh, and schools not being able to reopen, and this coming to to a loggerhead with the state, is a great opportunity for a politician to get a big win and to say, you know what, I got the kids back into into the classrooms. That would be a huge win. And to go back to the issue about political leadership and being able to solve problems, I suspect that um, if Jerry Brown was governor, I suspect there's a pretty good chance that we would get this done. If Schwarzenegger was governor before Brown, we would get this done. Um, if Gray Davis was governor, I don't know. 
I think Ray Davis is an, was another politician who is more in the set of politicians like Gavin than in the set of politicians like Brown or Schwarzenegger or Clinton or Reagan. Um, this would be a defining moment for a governor. Um, at the end of the day, I don't think Newsom has the leadership skills, the leadership abilities. I don't think he has the respect of those within the state um, to get that done. And in terms of the points Bill makes about the kinds of the kinds of uh, donations he's receiving from Reed Hastings, um, absolutely. And what's so ironic about this is that um, the idea of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, and I think California would be identified as the most progressive state in the country, the Democratic Party here is, um, is as much or more beholden to a political set of elites, those who can make very large donations, either uh, because of the loopholes Reed Hastings is exploiting, or because you're an incredibly powerful and well-funded uh, teachers union or the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union. I wouldn't call this Democratic Party one that's progressive. It's the, it's the exact opposite of being progressive. It's a, it's a party that's really being influenced and potentially controlled by a lot of elites. And at some point that becomes that, you know, at some point the cat comes out of the bag. Um, and more and more people know this, it becomes even more of a, a political issue. So Jonathan, when you mentioned, you know, you know, which way does the Democratic Party pivot? Um, I don't think that's known until they have a really powerful and respected uh, person in the governor's office who can lead and who can form consensus. Um, and in my opinion, Newsom isn't, Newsom isn't that guy. And I think the Democratic Party is going to be a little bit rudderless in terms of where it moves on the political spectrum, whether they try to pivot more center or they stay where they are, where they go even more left. Now, meanwhile, Jonathan Lee, what I'm curious about is Republican messaging here. We, um, you know, we started this by talking about Republican candidates there. Um, this is Friday the 9th. Keep in mind there right now. Let's see. One, two, three, four. I count at least five what I would say prominent Republican figures by prominent I mean people who could get media attention. Kevin Faulkner, the former mayor of San Diego. John Cox, the, uh, the 2018 candidate. Doug Osi, a former uh, congressman from the Sacramento area. Uh, Caitlyn Jenner. Um, and finally, Kevin Kiley, who jumped in the race uh, this week, uh, who's interesting. He's only 36 years old, same age Jerry Brown. He was first moved to Governor of California. He is uh, something of a rising star in the GOP assembly ranks, and he's clearly a young man in, the hur in a hurry. And I, I suspect his doing this gets back to my thought of this is a good trial run for 2022. But you know, Lee and Jonathan, if you're running uh, in this recall, there's a question about if you're running against Newsom or you're running against California or trying to tie the two together. Uh, let me give you a very good example. Um, this is something that happened in San Francisco this week, Lee. Uh, there was a theft. Now, this is nothing new in San Francisco. You don't stop the presses when there's news of a theft in SF, but this one was pretty spectacular. This was a, a daylight robbery at, um, at uh, Neiman Marcus downtown. Uh, at least nine people uh, just ran into Neiman Marcus late in the afternoon and just did a smash and grab, and they grabbed as many handbags as they could, and they ran out of there in broad daylight and jumped into a car, and away they fled. Uh, this is late in the day, so you might think they're worried about traffic, but apparently not. Uh, the cops uh, eventually showed up on the scene. Um, and the reason why I mention this is because you can say on the one hand, you know, this is local, this is San Francisco. Well, 
Let's take a step back. First of all, Gavin Newsom was mayor of San Francisco, but Gavin Newsom was also a very prominent supporter of a measure passed in 2014 called Proposition 47, the quote unquote, for those who are irony uh, challenged, it's called the Safe Neighborhood and Schools Act. And what it did, among other things, was it raised the value of stolen goods necessarily to uh, make theft a, a felony offense. It raised that level from $400 to $950. So if Lee grabs a handbag out of Neiman Marcus and tries to make a, a run for it and he gets caught, if that handbag is under $950, not a felony. But if he has more than $950 goods um, in his possessions, it is a felony. Uh, as in part as a result of this measure, uh, you see uh, thefts and vehicle break-ins, especially in San Francisco, just kind of take off like crazy. Uh, uh, the San Francisco Central Station, the SFPD Central Station, reported a 753% increase in thefts and vehicles from May of 21 compared to May of 20. Um, it's so bad in San Francisco, actually, that uh, business owners in Fisherman's Wharf uh, have a new nickname. It's called San Francisco Snow. And San Francisco snow refers to shards of auto glass littering the street from, from smash and grab. So, so Lee, here's the question. You could run against Gavin Newsom by dint of supporting that measure in, um, in 2014, or you could run against um, the likes of George Gascone, who is now the Los Angeles district attorney, uh, who is the target of a recall in LA. Uh, but as a San Francisco DA, he was the one who put on the ballot. So, so Lee, do you run against one of you to try to run against both at the same time? Yeah, uh, Bill, great point. San Francisco, <laughs> I've written about San Francisco a lot for our, our column, California, On Your Mind. And um, and about um, maybe three or four months ago, I wrote a, a column called um, The Democratic Party San Francisco Problem, um, because San Francisco is becoming um, su such a mess, ranging from, ranging from crime um, to uh, to enormous drug use, uh, and of course those two are are closely connected. In 2020, um, to give an example of just what's going on in San Francisco, of course COVID has been called the greatest public health crisis that we've seen in our lifetime. In 2020, in San Francisco, three times as many people died of opioid overdoses, um, almost all fentanyl, which is incredibly, uh, incredibly powerful, than they did of COVID. Um, I received a very uh, a quick sidebar. I received a call from an Australian reporter last week who, who lives in D.C., and he writes through the, I believe it's called the Australian Magazine. And um, he went to San Francisco for vacation to visit some old classmates. Um, and he, he wrote to me and said, I, I can't believe what I'm seeing here. Um, I went for a run um, and six people stopped me asking me, would you like to buy some drugs? Um, I saw people defecating in the streets. I saw broken glass in cars. Um, this just seems unlivable. And I think, Bill, what you run against, if any of these people could get media attention, we should talk, we should talk about just the lack of media attention that, that the Republican uh, or the opposition candidates are receiving. I think the media is doing everything they can to make sure that Gavin stays in office. Um, but I would point to San Francisco. Um, and I think, the, I think if you if you considered what if someone like Clinton or like Reagan who had those political skills ran, they would run on a particular vision. And the vision would be the state is broken for most people and I'm gonna fix it. 
And here's how I'm going to fix this. Nothing fancy, it's common sense. And I think that's how, um, if I was advising one of these candidates, they had the political skills of, uh, that, that I think would be, that, that you'd need. I think that's how I'd advise them. But, but Bill, Bill, you know, you're, you're in the world of media, you know, why, um, you know, if you're a young reporter, I think you, you could probably make some hay by trying to get some comments from Faulkner mm-hmm. or Caitlin um, or Cox. But, um, you know, I look at the newspapers and I just don't see very much. I don't see much in terms of local television. Um, what do you think's going on with that? I think partly um, some reporters in California still remember the recall of 2003 of the Arnold, which they would describe as fun and entertaining and they want to be similarly entertained and you know i'm in south carolina right now away from california and i'm spending quality time with four very precious grand nephews that i have all aged between the ages of four and two they need to be entertained at all times Um, reporters are not toddlers and they shouldn't be similarly entertained they should be taking a serious look at this uh and i must say i'm getting kind of frustrated with it too uh Faulkner, to his credit, I'm, I'm not endorsing Governor Faulkner, uh, Faulkner here and others, Lee. We will take calls from anybody who wants to talk to us. Uh, Faulkner is trying to do this a very traditional way. He's coming up with very meaty policy proposals. He's rolling them out. He's trying to address California issues, point to what he did in San Diego. And as Lee alludes to, he's kind of the equivalent of a tree falls in the forest. Doesn't make any sound if nobody's around. He does make some local, um, he does make some local uh, news here and there, but he's just kind of not absent uh, vis-a-vis the attention let's say Caitlyn Jenner gets, I guess, just because simply she's clickbait or uh, John Cox, who I mentioned, who first of all campaigned uh, with a thousand pound bear next to him just to get attention. And his recent um, his recent stunt, he's kind of the Gallagher of the recall candidates. You know, he needs a watermelon and a sledgehammer. He's now campaigning uh, with an eight foot ball of trash to uh, point out uh, trash and homelessness in California, which I think, by the way, has been affected. We'll get that in a minute. Um, but reporters simply just are not taking a wonkish approach to this. And uh, And that's unfortunate because this is what the recall should be right now. While, yes, technically, if you look at the recall ballot, uh, it has nothing to do with the pandemic. The recall started, uh, the the movement started before the the pandemic, so it's not COVID related. But it's a chance for voters to really look under the hood and kind of, you know, assess the health of the engine of their state. But by golly, the reporters in the state just don't want to do it, given given the choice of uh, going to to somebody who's affiliated with the Kardashians or somebody who's hanging out with a thousand pound bear uh, versus the wonk who's actually talking about problem solving, uh, the wonk's not getting traction. I'd add, Lee, by the way, this happened in 2003 with the, uh, the late Peter Ubroth. Uh, I think Peter Ubroth is late. I hope if he's not, I apologize, Ms. Ubroth. Uh, but Peter Ubroth, um, in 2003, the former head of the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984, former commissioner of Major League Baseball, and as Lee knows, a very serious man, uh, ran in the recall. And he had a lot of serious policy ideas and not far into the recall, he realized that he was just kind of outgunned, if you will. He tried to, uh, he did a press avail one day to talk about our proposal. I forget what it was exactly. And Schwarzenegger was nearby and he was at a shopping mall and he was shooting t-shirts out of a cannon. And that's where the press were. And at that point, uh, um, uh, uh, the commissioner uh, threw his hands up in the air and decided uh, Mr. Uberoth did that uh, enough of this. Now, that won't be the case with Faulkner. He'll keep campaigning, but it's just as if reporters don't really kind of want to look at the you know serious issues with this with this state. But, you know, Lee, we've talked about this on previous podcasts as well. Um, that this is the question of uh, the examination of California. And I know you've talked about this. This is a wonderful column in the uh, New York Post today by Kyle Smith. Uh, and it's very simply California versus New York. And uh, if you look at how California COVID handled COVID, very opposite from Florida. 
If you look at how Florida has reopened, you know, Disney World opened up last year, Disneyland only opened up recently. People are moving to Florida, people are moving away from California. You have two very distinct uh, differences of how a state for one. He cites uh, Charles C.W. Cook, the great writer for the National Review, uh, who is a Brit, but he moved to Jacksonville and he pointed out that when he got there, he and his wife went to the DMV and they got their IDs and their, they got their license plates and their uh, IDs in about uh, two hours. And, you know, Lee, that would take probably two weeks or two months in California at best. So anyway, we seem to, you know, there's a potential maybe in a better world if reporters are willing to play Lee to make this, you know, Newsom versus the field in some regards, kind of a California versus Florida, but also kind of a red versus blue referendum. Yeah, it, it certainly could go that way. You look at Florida and um, and the really the uh, I mean no pun intended the sun is shining on them and not so much on California. You look at how the two states uh, two states manage COVID and, and and Bill you highlighted some of the differences and when you look at the infection rates and the death rates and you make some age adjustments because the demographics in Florida a lot of retired folks live there. Um, you you certainly can't say that California was hit less hard by COVID than Florida. Um, so what you have is California taking really draconian actions on shutting down economic activity. Um, California had about the 49th worst unemployment rate during the peak of COVID. We're still about 49th, we might even be 50th. We, uh, there was a recent, um, recent article came out of a research center at the University of Wisconsin. And that article had a graph and it showed how fast jobs were being created relative to the state's unemployment rate. The idea being that if there's a lot of unemployed people, we should be getting them, we should be getting them back to work. California is creating very few jobs. And this is striking because we have, we continue to have relatively one of the highest, if not the highest unemployment rate in the country. Um, and I, um, and Bill, just one point uh, that you made about, um, about, the about the opposition candidates for the recall. Um, so I've been, um, so I've worked without endorsing uh, Faulkner and also Caitlyn Jenner. It's really interesting, Kevin Kiley is in, because um, if you look at that group, um, Kylie is, uh, I think, an incredibly powerful politician. He went to bat uh, to fight AB5, um, which, uh, which I've called you know, one of the worst California laws, perhaps the, the worst California law, in the, you know, certainly in my lifetime of living in California. That was the law that forbid an individual to work as an independent contractor, with the exception of some politically favored carve-outs. Um, Tow truck drivers who have a AAA affiliation, AAA has very powerful political lobby in Sacramento, were exempted from AB5. Tow truck drivers without a AAA affiliation, no such luck. You cannot work as an independent contractor. Um, Kylie has remarkable energy, powerful politician, really, really smart guy with good economic ideas. Um, <clears throat> So I agree with you entirely that I think he's using this as a bit of a platform to get his to get his uh, his vision in front of the state, and then springboard off of that for uh, for 2022. But it's just getting harder and harder to look at California and pretend that everything is okay. We still have Silicon Valley. We still have Disneyland. We still have 
tourism when that comes back. It's really hard to keep you know pretending um, that's the case when now 40% of Californians live in the census definition of poverty or near poverty. Um, and Bell, I'd love to um, you know I'd love to hear your current thoughts on uh, on you know if you think about the median voter in the Democratic Party, it's probably and uh, a household where head of household is, uh, is an Hispanic adult, um, two adults working, two adults working a lot, um, relatively conservative, highly tied to the labor force, more, uh, more tied to, to an organized religion. Um, I would suspect that a candidate that would serve that median person, the Democratic Party best, would be someone other than Gavin Newsom. Um, but if he does prevail, um, why do you think that, what, do you think that the four years of Trump just poisoned the well so much for Republican candidates that they just need to wait uh, before, before these people will even look at a Republican? Yeah, I think that the brand um, is still a big problem. Uh, let me get a good example. Our colleague, Lon He Chen, um, is taking a leave of absence from the Hoover Institution to run for state controller. He announced uh, just the other day. Uh, story appears dutifully in the San Francisco Chronicle, announcing that Lon He is running. They interview him. So this is for the state controller, folks. So this is a budgetary job. This is sort of the COO of the California budget. You, you audit the budget. You make sure that uh, it's indeed in balance. You go after agencies to make sure they're running properly. Uh, it's a terrific, terrific job for a, uh, for a fiscal watchdog. Uh, so naturally, the questions he's asked by the reporter, but he's asked his position on abortion. He's asked whether or not he voted for Donald Trump. <laughs> this is just simply not germane to the job he's doing, but it's the filter uh, through which you have to run as a Californian. So I think there's only one way around this lead. You have to, you have to find topics on which there is uh, mutually shared outreach in the state. Uh, this is why I think uh, John Cox, who I mentioned earlier, um, did something smart here. While I'm not a fan of stunt politics by any means, I, I cringe when I have the thought of thousand pound bears. Uh, campaigning next to an eight foot ball of trash did seem to get the governor's attention, Lee and Jonathan, because you probably saw this week that the Governor's been out there uh, talking about wanting to spend a billion dollars on statewide garbage pickup. Now, Lee, here's the challenge for the recall campaigns to do their homework, because this is kind of a good way to play gotcha with the governor if you want to. Um, if you want to talk about trash, if the governor wants to be sort of the pickup guy in California in that regard, you need to go back to his record as mayor of San Francisco. In 2007, he decided the best way to reduce garbage in San Francisco was to get rid of garbage cans. He Thought a better looking city would be one where he didn't have overflowing garbage cans. Good point. But guess what, Lee? The opposite happened. They took away about 1,500 trash cans in San Francisco. Um, there were about 4,500 at the time, went down to about 3,100. And people started having to walk not just you know feet, but blocks to find garbage cans. And guess what? If you're carrying a bag of dog poop or a you know, an empty soda bottle or, you know, soda you know, thing you got at McDonald's, you just dump it on the street, you give up in frustration. That's what's happened in San Francisco. The, the city is now washing garbage. Uh, Manhattan, uh, New York City, Lee, um, is only 23 square miles. So it's about half the size of San Francisco, which I think is 47 square miles. Manhattan has about 9,000 trash cans. And so now uh, uh, the city is trying to put in more trash cans. This is what I mean, Lee, when you get to a conversation about how California is run. Uh, Newsom is at all times kind of a great progressive experimenter. He wants to kind of bring these wonkish ideas into, into play. And so what's more wonkish? And, you know, the best way to get rid of garbage is get rid of garbage cans. Well, in real life applications, it's just the opposite. So I, I think a 
smart recall candidate, Lee, will just kind of use the governor's record against him, but that's assuming there are smart recall candidates, but it also gets back to the question of whether or not if that tree falls in the forest, if it's going to make sound by the media reporting it. Yeah, Bill, absolutely. I, um, I did, I did an event with Faulkner a couple months ago where he announced his tax plan, uh, which personally I think has a lot of good components to it. Um, And there were about 20, there were about 20 people turned up for that. Um, Some of the major independent stations were there, KTLA. um, And I got, I was, I was interviewed um, by some of the papers, but it was, uh, (laughs) it was, um, it was surprising to me um, to see a major politician within the state. He'd been mayor, mayor of San Diego, um, Republican in a Democratic town who got elected there. He obviously made enough good decisions and got enough done to be elected despite being a Republican. And um, here he was announcing the flagship part of his platform about taxes and um, hardly any coverage whatsoever. Um, so it does, um, it does seem to be a puzzle. And when I, Bill, when I read that story about trash and, um, and so forth, um, I thought, you know, where did that come from in the first place? We shouldn't have to be spending an extra 1.3 billion to pick up trash. That's one of the functions of government is to do things like picking up trash and make sure there's enough trash cans on street corners. And there, Bill, there's a sense in which, um, you know, defeating Gavin Newsom, in, in a di- there's a parallel universe <laughs> where defeating Gavin Newsom should be like shooting fish in a barrel. You tell stories like, yeah, he thought we could get rid of trash by, by just getting rid of trash cans. Um, he preaches about building houses and that was his Marshall plan for his candidacy in 2018. Well, the first year of his governorship before COVID, housing starts were 82% below his target. Um, I think it's really hard for him to point to anything positive. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's gone on this racist, white supremacist, extremist, QAnon, Trump-fueled rant about the recall because he doesn't really have any wins to point to. He can talk about, well, the state's coming back, but when asked, how do we look compared to others, there's nothing to provide there. There's nothing to provide for how have, how have we made progress in terms of cost of living or jobs or housing, or have we fixed the 40-year-old IT system in the education department that now has spilled out $32 billion in fraudulent unemployment claims. Um, that These all happened on Newsom's watch. Um, so, so Lee, if I, were, um, if I were advising a recall candidate in terms of a message here, in terms of what to run on, I would say, number one, you got to do schools. Because why? Schools affects, you know, lower class and middle class Californians, as we learned during the pandemic, especially for working class uh, Californians. Um, public schools are two things. Number one, it's a ladder for your children to a better life. And secondly, it's daycare, plain and simple. You don't have the kind of job where you can stay home and work out of your house on Zoom. You've got to physically be somewhere. You need your kids to be in school. Um, so I would make schools a component, Lee. The second component I would make would be something we haven't talked about yet, but it ties to the trash, which is why Cox has the ball of trash. 
that's homelessness. He's using trash as a metaphor for homelessness, but there's a good question, Lee, as to why California with only one-eighth of the nation's population is home to one-fourth of the nation's homeless population and a pernicious population that's not going away. And Newsom, as mayor says, promised he was going to you know, rid the city of homelessness. And of course, that failed. He's now promising to do it as governor. It will probably fail. But the third question, Lee, is there has to be an economic component to this. You have to you know, it's if not the Reagan-esque question of are you better off today than you were four years ago, Lee, maybe how you tap into this economy and maybe if you're, you know, in the middle of that barbell economy, you're the very squeezed middle class in terms of your housing, your food, your gasoline, the cost of living. How would you develop a, just kind of an easy understand economic message, Lee? What, what would you propose? Yeah, I mean, I think there, um, again, if we go back to the state's median voter, um, you know, probably household, um, Hispanic household, parents uh, in their 40s, um, kids in teen years and early 20s. And I think you ask, would you like your child to be able to afford a house and live near you in the state? And I think for nine out of 10 people in the state, the answer for that right now is no. And the, um, the, the legislation that passed um, last year, which which did away with the ability to grandfather your Prop 13 tax liability into a gift to your kids, that is gone now. So I I, I think what I would do is, is I think I, I think I would sort of focus on um, do you think can can your child afford to buy a home here? And I think for the I think the answer to a lot of people will be, will be, no, they can't. Um, I mean, certainly my, my oldest son is 29. He, um, he, he's, he lives in Texas. Um, I probably mentioned this before, but he, he just got married. He and his wife bought a 4,000 square foot house just outside North Dallas. Um, I, he just texted me a photo of himself sitting in his media room, big movie theater type chairs, huge screen, huge screen that he's projecting onto. They pay $370,000 uh, for that house. Um, so I think, I think I might go right to housing and I think homelessness obviously fits, fits in with that as well. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but just, you know, driving home. And then the other uh, issue is obviously crime. And here Lee, is where the sped up recall works. Uh, on the one hand, uh, if this recall had been last December, Newsom, I think would have been in real, real trouble because why? Uh, just a lot of misery in the state at that time in terms of the COVID spike rates going on, plus holiday plans messed up and was sort of been right on the heels of his infamous venture to the French Laundry. He might have been tossed at that point, Lee. Now, here we are uh, six, seven months later. He maybe is out of the woods, but he faces a different set of problems moving forward. And one of those, I think, is getting back to what I talked about the Neiman Marcus episode, and that's crime and not just and not just, uh, you know, smash and grab in San Francisco, but just crime around the around the state. And it's a result, really, I think, of uh, issues coming back to haunt Democrats. I mentioned Prop 47, which changed the uh, rules for property theft. There's also Proposition 57, which was championed by Jerry Brown. And that was uh, involving the early release of uh, prisoners from California penitentiaries. And so uh, you get a spike in the crime rate. And this is the California, ironically, that I moved to in 1994. And I came to work for Governor Wilson in Sacramento. I brought a car out with me and my car was stolen within about two months of moving to Sacramento. And it was just, 
it was this kind of nickel and diming of people, especially with auto theft, uh, that uh, just put people in a foul mood. You saw a lot of very harsh crime measures like three strikes uh, on the ballot that year. But crime was very much a galvanizing issue for a governor like Pete Wilson. Uh, voters looked past social issues, although he was pro-choice, and they focused on that instead. So again, when I talk about issues that you know candidates need to, you know, kind of common interest issues, if you will, issues like crime and homelessness and I think economic uncertainty are the things that could cut across party lines, but cut across income lines and class lines. Yeah, um, no, and no, exactly. Um, you know, Bill, in in preparation for for our, our chat this morning, I, I picked up, I I I, I pulled down some some crime stats. Um, homicides in LA last year rose forty percent from the year prior. Huh. Oakland. 36% increase in homicides. Uh, San Francisco, 17% increase in homicides. Uh, car thefts were up 24% in those cities. Burglaries were up 28% in those cities. Um, and um, I, I was uh, I received an email last week from an African American fellow uh, lives in uh, lives in San Diego, and. Um, is a uh, is a sports trainer, very successful sports trainer. He worked in the NFL for a number of years. He now has private clients, and he told me he said, "You know, I can make one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year or more uh, in this state, but I can't afford to buy a house." Um, I, I wonder what's on people's minds because what I care about is opportunity, which I have here in California, and protection, and we're not protected here. Crime has become a horrendous issue. And again, if we go back to the idea of, hey, beating Newsom should be a little bit like shooting fish in a barrel. There's so much to point to in terms of failures. There's so little to point to in terms of wins. Um, and, um, you know, Bill, when you when you mentioned the Neiman Marcus, uh, the Neiman Marcus episode, I was going to say, you know, are they going over to the 50 percent off table because Neiman Marcus is pretty pricey. But, you know, on a on a on a more serious note, um, you have Walgreens drugstores uh, and CVS right. drugstores throughout San Francisco. They're closing their doors because shoplifting has gotten to the point. And, you know, it, you can go to YouTube and if you Google YouTube. San Francisco, either Walgreens or CVS shoplifting, you can find hundreds of videos where somebody, someone walks in, they just start grabbing things, put it in a bag and walk out. Um, and those, 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 those pharmacies are shutting down and that's going to, that's, that could be, that could be a life and death situation for some of the people in those neighborhoods. It's uh yeah. So Lee, what I'm curious about, Lee, is uh, when we talk about recall in California, we should be talking about recalls plural, because it's not just the governor who is a subject to recall, it's also uh, local elected officials. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, the current DA of Los Angeles County, George Cascone, is a subject to recall. And so is the current DA of San Francisco, a job Kamala Harris once held, uh, a gentleman named Chase Budin. He's also the subject of recall. And I wonder, Lee, if voters really looking for a pound of flesh, maybe they don't take it out on Gavin Newsom on September 14th, but maybe these two law enforcement figures um, are kind of ripe for the pick, and especially since laws are not being enforced in their cities. Yeah, no, no, no exactly. The, I mean, I, I, I hate to laugh about this, but it's it's almost ludicrous the type of policing, the type of prosecution, really it's the type of prosecution that's going on in those cities. Um, uh, Budin is an interesting character. Um, 
he was a public defender. He, his parents, um, Bill, correct me if I'm wrong. I think both of his parents may have been members of the Weathermen. The, yeah, back in the 1960s. Um, and, you know, while he says this isn't true, he's essentially not prosecuting drug-related crimes. So what you have is a lot of drug users, a lot of opioid addicts um, are migrating to California like teenagers migrated to Woodstock back in 1969 and drug sellers go where the demand is. So drug sellers have moved to San Francisco and there are parts of the city that have been turned into an open air. Literally, it's like a, uh, it would be like a farmer's market for drugs. Um, and I believe there were over 300 fentanyl related deaths last year, about one a day. Uh, and what goes with that is just as we talked about enormous crime um, and crime cuts across party lines. So, yeah, very well may be the case that um, those guys will be the sacrificial lambs here. Um, I think if voters think about it a little bit more, um, you know, it, 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 it doesn't stop there. It goes up to the it goes up to the top and at the top of the Democratic Party is where a lot of this comes from. So. It's not really going to solve the problem by recalling um, the San Francisco and LA DAs. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. It's. Uh, I don't see. I don't see San Francisco and LA being more livable necessarily, assuming those recalls go through. Mm -hmm. uh, gentlemen, another uh, big issue is uh, our heat wave that we're experiencing in California and the record amount of fires. The Associated Press reported um, this week that the wildfires in 2021 have great, greatly exceeded the year of 2020. They have been a, there have been a total of almost of almost 4,600 fires, which have scorched 114.8 square miles. Um, to quote a colleague at the Hoover Institution, um, Millbank senior fellow Neil Ferguson, why aren't we? Why haven't we we've been getting uh, better at uh, containing and preventing such disasters? like wildfires in the Golden State. And is this so could this be another winning issue for the uh, conservative or the Republican side of the ledger? Lee, you want to take that first? Yeah, uh, sure, sure. Uh, it definitely can be. And, um, you know, this is another issue that I think the state Democratic Party, the state Democratic Party has a canned, has a canned answer for a lot of things that happen in the state. And that canned answer is, it's climate change. Is climate change, um, but that makes it sound like what can you do? It's climate change. Um, regarding regarding firefighters uh, or wildfires, um, ten, I believe, in the last twelve years, the last twelve years, ten of those years have been um, the uh, subsequently the largest year for fires on record. Uh, and here's a really depressing statistic. Since California started aggressively reducing carbon emissions um, through expensive means, including things like requiring all homes to have solar panels put on them, um, incredibly energy intensive windows, appliances, um, raising the cost of a new home by potentially 35 to $40,000, when the average home is already $800,000 median price, um, all of those carbon emission reduction efforts, 
is estimated to have been gone for not because of the carbon emissions just from the wildfires that have occurred in the last 20 years. Um, and if we think about quality of governance, functionality of governance, this is incredibly inefficient governance. Uh, what should have been done was to have that acreage treated, fire breaks, pruning. Um, and if you want to think about another classic Gavin Newsom moment, Newsom advertised, um, you know, puffing out his chest a bit that roughly 90,000 acres of land had been treated. Uh -huh. Well, NPR, um, you know, ironically, a very progressive uh, media outlet, NPR dug into the data and NPR found out that 11,000 acres had been treated, not right. 90,000. And the uh, California um uh, the fire chief, the fire chief of California. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I don't have the title correct. The fire chief knew that the data Newsom was presenting was not accurate. Um, so again, when we think about priorities, priorities of government are to protect number one. And when we, we talked about crime, now we're talking about wildfires. My own community uh, in, in Santa Barbara, um, you know, three years ago, we had to evacuate our home uh, because of wildfire, because of, of areas that had not been treated for probably 30 or 40 years. Um, right. So, uh, Jonathan, absolutely, that's an issue people can run on. There's, there's no shortage of issues people can run on against, uh, against Newsom. Um, and, you know, the question comes back to you. Um, are voters going to think about that? Are they going to tie it to Newsom? Are, is the media going to cover it? Or will voters just throw up their hands and say, ah, you know, hey, it's climate change, and I'm not going to vote for one of these Republicans. They're too close to Trump. Right. So here, Newsom will probably try to get Donald Trump involved and try to distract voters by you know, reminding about Trump famously wanted to rake forests and so forth. But uh, uh, there's a problem here, and this is kind of the consistency in the Newsom record. It's you've talked about this, but what have you actually done? Uh, so Lee's right uh, about the, uh, the 11,000 uh, uh, acre figure that uh, the governor has been dishonest about. Uh, what do we know? We know that in 2020, about uh, 4 million acres in California burned. That's double the previous record, which was in 2018. We know we're in a drought right now, uh, which means that uh, there's an abundance of dry vegetation. Uh, somebody lights a match, California is going to burn. And yet the question is, what has the governor done? If you go back to his first full day in office, uh, Lee and Jonathan, this would be January the 8th of 2019. Um, he stood before the cameras. This is his first gubernatorial photo op, if you will. Uh, he's wearing jeans and sneakers. He's surrounded by emergency responders. And he declares nothing less than a war on wildfires. Be wearing a politician declares war on something, by the way. Um, what the governor say? Everybody's had enough. And so he wanted to uh, say, he said that it's time for the state's response to fundamentally change. But two and a half years later, um, not much has really happened. In fact, if you look at right now, uh, so the governor is throwing, uh, I think, about an extra $1.2 billion, Lee, in what's called wildfire resiliency funding. Uh, at best, if you talk to experts, that means that you're dealing with enough money to get you through what is a less dangerous wildfire season. So we're not playing catch up. And you know, Lee mentioned the, uh, the discrepancy in, uh, in uh, 90,000 acres versus 11,000 acres. Um, if you look right now, uh, how many acres Cal Fire has treated um, in uh, California, they treated uh, 64,000 acres in 2019 and 32,000 and uh, only two to 32,000 acres in 2020 and only 24,000 acres through Memorial Day of this year. So they're not out there doing the job that the governor promised. So again, the question is what happened between the rhetoric 
and the delivery. And again, this is the consistency of Newman with Newsom. It's just, it's an MO of him. He likes to offer big, grandiose ideas, but it's the follow through that never seems to follow through. Yeah, Bill, Bill you know, it reminds me a little bit of a, um, of a coach of a sports team. Um, and the team, <laughs> the team's got a, the team's got a losing record, but my goodness, uh, the reporters are friendly and, um, the press conference is, is filled with a, with a lot of softballs and the coach says, gosh, you know, we've been making such great progress. We were, we were handed, we, you know, I didn't inherit a great deck of cards, but my goodness, things are going to be getting so much better. And at some point um, the coach either delivers or gets fired. Um, the, the, the athletic coaching ranks is one in which there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of risk. Uh, you have to win to keep your job. Um, Bill, ultimately, ultimately, um, is that going to happen in California? I think you need a trigger to make it happen. So we talked about crime, for example. What drove California reform in the 1990s with regard to crime? Uh, it was a lot of pent-up frustration over nickel and dime criming, like you know my auto theft I mentioned, but it was also some rather sensational events that um, that drove the public's attention uh, to crime. It was uh, not just OJ, but also the Poly Class uh, kidnapping that you might remember, Lee, the young girl abducted by a, uh, a fellow who should have been uh, behind uh, bars. That guy became the poster child for three strikes. Um, just you know, other issues that just led the news uh, with, with crime talk, if you will. So some trigger in California has to uh, catch the voters' attention. You go back to the recall of 2003, that trigger was quite simply the vehicle license fee uh, controversy. Um, Gav, uh, Gray Davis, then the governor of California, had to uh, deal with the budget mess at the time. He had a budget shortfall to uh, fill the hole in the budget. Lee, he decided to triple the uh, vehicle license fee, or car taxes it's called, but it's really a fee and not a tax. Uh, anyway, um, millions of Californians got their vehicle license fees in the mail later that year because they don't pay much attention to the uh, uh, daily doings of Sacramento. They didn't know this happened, and suddenly their VLF fee that might have been 200 bucks was now 600 bucks. And their reaction was, well, we probably couldn't say it on this uh, family broadcast of ours, but they weren't happy about it. You don't mess with a person's car in California. Uh, no. anyway, anyway, Lee, that's uh, a long way of saying that I think something has to happen in Sacramento that just squarely lands on the plate of voters. I think that education in the past year has been a very good example of something that could potentially do this if people start to question, why is my school closed? Why, why if I live in Southern California, which is one of the most lovely temperate parts of America to live in, why is my school closed when they get to set up a tent my kid could learn outside? Why is, why is little Johnny stuck at home on Zoom? Um, that makes you wonder about how your government's being run. And I think this has to be just a continual refrain, just chipping away at it, just trying to point voters to the fact that, look, your state spends hundreds of billions of dollars a year on your budget, and this is what you get for it. You know, is this really what you deserve? Now, again, our colleague Lahi Chen is trying to run on this message uh, for state control. I'd be curious to see how far it gets with it, but I think it's probably incumbent upon the recall candidates to probably try the same thing. I, going after Gaffo Newsom on a personality basis, you know, he's too slick, he's too Marin County, you know, would you trust this guy? Um, I'm not sure if that quite does it. I think you have to tie them to more tangible issues, Lee. Yeah, Bill, absolutely. I suspect that if we transplanted today's issues back to 2003, just to give an idea of just how much the state has changed, um, I think we probably would be seeing that. Um, but now um, I wonder, you know, I wonder, I, I wonder whether 
the tab fee would it be enough today? Um, I just I just don't know. The voters of this state constantly are a mystery to me. Um, what are they going to respond to? I keep thinking that um, that President Trump really just completely poisoned the well against a lot of against a lot of Republican candidates. Um, and the smart ones um, and the smart ones, at least here in California, have to run away from him as uh, as far as far as they can. Um, so we'll uh, we'll see. We will see. Just as sort of a final question, just to wrap it up, um, Kamala Harris, it's been reported, the former California senator and current vice president, it's been reported that there is dysfunction within the ranks of her office. Um, and there's also some criticism for her delayed visit to the U.S.-Mexico border and issues in which she was charged by the president to handle. Um, in the near term, does this affect her future political prospects? Uh, boy, I'd say they certainly do. Um, the idea for Kamala Harris is that you are the nominee in waiting, that Joe Biden, who will turn 79 later this year, uh, he'll be 82 come 2024, just simply too old, uh, not vigorous enough to seek another four years. And so there she is as the vice president waiting to take over. And if you look at the history of um, vice presidents on both sides, it's usually a pretty good position to have. You know, Al Gore got his party's nomination. Walter Mondale got it. Joe Biden got it. Uh, now, winning the presidency is another matter, but it seems to be a pretty easy path. But each day that goes by with this a question of Kamala Harris's handling of her job, which ultimately gets down to core competency. I know you're seeing some pushback by people saying that to criticize Kamala somehow makes you a misogynist or makes you a racist or maybe both. You know, if you just look at the job that she is doing, um, is she handling the border uh, situation properly? I would say no. Voters Voters are basically treating us like their house is on fire. And instead of her wanting to put out the fire on the roof, she wants to talk about the root cause of fire. And that's not a conversation voters want. They want to know what you're doing about the border. Um, in her defense, the, uh, her president is not doing her a lot of favors. He handed her his weakest issue, which is immigration, and said, here, deal with it. And that's just, boy, that's just getting handed a time bomb. Thank you very much. Uh, he also handled her, handed her um, the responsibility for shepherding through HR1, which is the voting rights bill, a very unpopular bill with the public, had no chance of going anywhere in Congress. And so the president's people said, here, Madam Vice President, you take it and run with it. So I would say in defense to her, she's been giving some, she'd been given a couple of political losers, and I'm not sure how she'd handle them. But at the end of the day, I'm curious to get Lee's thoughts on this too. There is a question of kind of her core competency. She has had, by just anyone's estimation, a really magical run in politics this past um, decade plus. She barely got by when she ran for attorney general in 2010, if not for Meg Whitman's really bad gubernatorial performance in Los Angeles County, she probably loses that race. And she is, uh, who knows where she is today if she if she doesn't win that race. Instead, she breezes to re-election in 2014. Barbara Boxer steps down from the Senate in 2016. She just walks right into that. Then Joe Biden comes along in 2020 and says he wants a woman on the ticket. There she is very available for that. But now here she is as Vice President Jonathan Lee, and she actually has to produce. And I think for the first time in her career, at least at this level, when it comes to immigration, when it comes to voting rights, other issues, people are expecting results. And she just doesn't seem up to it. Yeah, uh, Bill, I agree with you completely. She is in over her head. Um, being from California, um, a one-party state, and being anointed by Willie Brown, just as Gavin Newsom was anointed by Willie Brown, I think there's a lot of parallels between Newsom and Harris in terms of the ability to lead, to create consensus, to make sensible decisions. To be a leader, to find a solution, to communicate that, and to get people around it, I, I just don't think that's her. I don't think she's going to be a politician that grabs people, that captivates people. 
She had to leave the Democratic, uh, the Democratic race um, in 2020 incredibly early um, after she could gain literally no traction whatsoever in her home state. And Bill, I agree with you. She's been given a couple of a, a couple of political stinkers to deal with. Um, a really good politician could have made some hay out of that. Um, but I think what she's demonstrating is that she doesn't have the leadership ability or the confidence um, to succeed at that. Um, so what? what, she, so what I, so I'm sorry. So what I think that means long term, Jonathan, is is this. Um, whereas she might have thought, or maybe people around her might have thought that 2024. It's all assuming Biden is a run, by the way. But they might have thought that 2024 would be something of a coronation from her. I think you will see some Democrats jumping and think that you know she's maybe not that formidable, and uh, maybe maybe AOC would do it or not. But somebody from the AOC wing would do it. Maybe some Democratic governor from outside the Beltway would run the obligatory, you know, as my state goes, so goes America. I just think, though, with each passing assignment that she fails, the more the reporters write about these stories questioning her competency, it just makes her all the more vulnerable come 2024. And, you know, we deal in media shorthand all the time. And, uh, you know, you see this on the likes of Saturday Night Live with parodies where George W. Bush is stupid or Bill Clinton's a horn dog or so on and so forth. And the one thing that Kamala Harris does not want to get stuck in, you know, the head of people who follow these things three years out is the idea of her being in overhead, that she is overhyped, she's overrated. Yeah, you know, uh, Bill, it reminds me of... Um... Uh, George H.W. Bush and Dan Quayle. And I remember when when uh, when Bush was running against Clinton and Ross Perot, who really threw uh, sand in the gears that year. I remember Bush saying something online along the lines of Dan Quayle getting better and better every day. <laughs> and, and I think that's what you'd uh, I think that's that's where I would put Harris. I don't think she's getting better and better every day, but what else would you say about her performance? Uh, and Bill, I agree. I think if, assuming assuming Biden doesn't run for a second term, I'd be really surprised if she was the 24 Democratic presidential nominee. I'd be well, shocked. This, t- this ties back into the beginning of our conversation with Gavin Newsom. I don't know if Newsom, assuming he survives recall, assuming he is then swept into office for another four years, I don't know if he have to have the audacity to turn around and run for president in 2024. Uh, Jerry Brown did it twice when he was governor. My boss, Pete Wilson, tried it his second term and failed spectacularly at it as well. So not always a good idea for California governors. There's also maybe a Senate seat in 2024, uh, Diane Feinstein, so we'd have options. But maybe Lee, as Newsom looks at surviving the recall and comes back next year, he'll probably have another big budget surplus. That's the anticipation. So it'll be more you know, progressive state on steroids. He might think of this as kind of a way to you know, get himself into back of the presidential conversation. Yeah, I certainly thought that would have been his ambition when he was first elected um, in 18, uh, and really a landslide um, over John Cox, who who I think from a standpoint of substance had much better ideas, economic ideas, but Cox, again, Cox couldn't get really any media coverage. Um, I believe they had one quote debate that was on, in, that was broadcast around 10 a.m. on the radio. Right. Um, so yeah, I could say, I, I think that was certainly on his, uh, on his radar. Um, I, I would like to think he, uh, if things don't change for him and he is who he is, that he will have a reality check and, and understand that, if Jerry Brown couldn't get it done, uh, Brown, much more effective politician, got a lot more things done than Newsom that he uh, that he won't certainly get it done. Um, so I would be, yeah, I'd be a little surprised by that. Um, again, I think the at the end of the day, the independents seem to be calling the shots uh, in the national political realm. Um, 
I was looking at some voter registration numbers. Um, at the height of Kennedy in the early 1960s, about half the country was registered Democrat. Um, and today, Bill, I think that's what down to about 30%, 35%, something like that. Um, and we have 40% independence. Um, so I think at the end, so I think you you need to deliver a message to relatively nonpartisan voters that one can lead and one can bring people together. Right. I don't think a candidate that uh, that doesn't have those qualities is going to be uh, is going to be able to get to that level. Certainly, Joe Biden communicated he had those ideas that he could bring people together. Um, he hasn't so far; still early in his presidency. But um, he's a guy uh, with what about fifty percent approval rating right now, uh -huh. um, right. which is which uh, uh, I think on on uh, on the five thirty eight website. That might be. Um, I think Trump might be the only guy who is uh, who who would be lower than that at this stage of his right. presence. And Jonathan, getting back to what you asked to begin this podcast, September the fourteenth is the date for the recall. Um, the one thing this governor fears is turnout or a lack of turnout. If you go back to the two thousand three recall, um, the most startling anomaly in that in that whole vote. Um, is what the exit polls showed in terms of who came out to vote. And they showed that it was just about even. I think it was 37% Republican and 38% Democratic. This is in a state that back, in, um, back then, uh, Democrats had about a 10-point advantage in voter registration. So what that showed you was Republicans were motivated, Democrats were not. And that probably explains, guys, why almost every day without fail, I get an email from Governor Newsom's campaign. I sign up for campaign emails whenever I can, because I get a great window into, into how campaigns message. But almost every day he's coming at me looking for a $3 donation, which I think is a reflection of just trying to drive down the average size of his donation to show that it's more folks populi. But also he's just trying to just drum the fact that, hey, there's an election coming up September 14th and I need your vote. The one thing that could do him in um, is while his poll numbers look rosy and while things are generally trending well in California, knock on wood, the Delta virus doesn't take us all out would be simply this. Democrats fall asleep in the election. They don't bother to show up. And Republicans who don't like the man do bother to show up. And somehow lightning strikes and he loses. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Jonathan. Always Thank fun. You, You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is Hoover, I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is Bill Whalen, C-A. Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle is at Lee underscore Ohanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also, check out, check out California on Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hanian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Marvoitis sitting in Bill, Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.